What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. So I'm taking the week off to relax with some friends and family, but I didn't want to leave you without some new content. So I've pulled up another archived episode from a few years back with one of my favorite drummers, Zach Lind of Jimmy Eat World. I'm getting Zach back on the show soon to talk about the top five influences that shaped him into the drummer he is today. But this episode has Zach breaking down his favorite Jimmy Eat World songs and explaining the story behind each one. His power and pop sensibility have been validated time and time again with numerous hits, though his parts still scream humility and respect for the song's bigger goal. There's a lot of great perspectives in this episode, including how the element of surprise is an artist's greatest weapon, knowing when you're not needed, and how he's always thinking about what he can take away from a part to make it more unique as opposed to adding more. I mean, come on, he's a pro. So here's my chat with Zach Lind and, oh, happy holidays. Cheers. My style has been kind of carved out based on my circumstances that I play in, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I really only like whenever I play drums, I'm always thinking of Jimmy Eat World songs or, you know, I'm rarely playing outside of the context of, of my band. So I think a lot of my style has been in some ways sort of dictated by the kind of music we play and my feeling on what I want to do in the songs to highlight the songs and uh what my priorities are as a drummer so that's that's kind of yeah i would say like i want to do whatever i can do to support the energy of the song by not also getting in the way or being super noticeable or distracting so that's kind of like the line i try to ride whenever i'm coming up with parts and and a lot of times like you know the parts that you know i come up with or whatever like Jim and I do a lot of collaboration on that there's sometimes when he does demos where he'll lay down a drum part it's interesting to me because as a drummer he's way more or you know as a guitar player he's a little bit more busy like he'll do lots of lots of things that I I wouldn't necessarily go to do but it's 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 kind of neat having a starting point at times when you know you're being prompted with something and then you're reacting to it and you're making it your own or and uh, you're kind of you know, having that conversation with Jim about, okay, well, what are we, you know, what's the goal here? What are we trying to do? So that's really kind of how my style has evolved over the years is just through that relationship and trying to think about what the song needs. Has it morphed over time? Do you guys like to write in the same room together or does he send you stuff? Like for, I'll put it in a personal context. I always like it when people send me stuff, then I can kind of shed it by myself when I don't think anyone's judging me by myself and then send them back my initial idea or do you guys prefer to be together in the room or at this point in the life of the band like there's really no judgments flying around so i i feel pretty i feel pretty comfortable (laughs) like we do both really you know like i'll send jim stuff i come up with just like a standalone drum pattern i'll send him that 
Jim will send me like uh, usually a demo that has some kind of drum element on it that he does mm. that he'll kind of come up with. And then um, or we'll like literally just Jim has a guitar idea and he'll just be like, hey, come down to the studio and together work out parts, you know, so we'll do. OK, so here's the here's the guitar part I'm thinking about for the verse. And then we'll lay down like five or six different options for that. So I'll just mm-hmm. do that verse part. So I'll come up with different things throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and then he'll have like, okay, this is what I'm thinking for the bridge. And so we, we try to come up with different options and then, and then we'll even just like, just do weird fills. Okay. Just do whatever weird fill. And then we kind of make it a big puzzle and then I'll leave and go home. And then Jim will like sit there and kind of say, okay, I'm going to kind of put it together like this. And then he'll put the guitar part on that. And um, so it, it kind of it can happen either way. Yeah, it is nice when you because you guys have been together since what ninety four was that the first record or yeah we've been together since we started at the end of ninety three and okay. then we started doing shows in the beginning of ninety four and we put out uh, yeah like the first record was in ninety four yeah I mean that that has to be nice to just <laughs> you kind of know what he's thinking know what he wants vice versa and that's best case scenario for sure. But let's just uh, move on to the first one. So, and I'm really happy you brought this up because, uh, and this one's kind of tricky for me because no matter what you say, I'm going to overdub the fact that you just used a big fat snare drum in it. But uh, <laughs> that snare drum in that song is so amazing. The song is Gotta Be Somebody's Blues off Chase This Light from 2007. And uh, so, yeah, talk a little bit about kind of the backstory of that song. So, that was a song where. You know, in my opinion, I think that was a a song where Jim had kind of come up with a demo and it was a very simple beat. Right. Mm -hmm. So and I and the song was so cool and Jim's vocal was so good on it that I was like, okay, this is not about like, what can I do with the part? This is all about the performance and the feel of it and the sound. So, Mm -hmm. it, you know, I wasn't thinking about anything other than being tricky or adding things. I was trying to think about how could I strip everything away? Um, and you know, I wanted there to be only two crashes in the song, one going into the bridge, one going into the last chorus and making those points like, okay, when you hit a crash, it sounds like a dramatic, you know, moment in the song. Um, so it was all about the sound and it was all about just kind of having the right feel. And that's one of the songs that I thought of. I almost think of instantly when people ask me about this, but it's the song where I'm most proud of the performance in the studio where it's like, I feel like I'm playing with an energy and a feel that really helps the song. And then the sound, I, I love the sound of that snare. On, on Chase This Light, I did all of the, that was kind of the beginning where I was doing all of my own drum teching and tuning. After Futures, um, we, had a, we had like a sort of pro dude at the Futures session. So Chase This Light was kind of the first album where I'm, okay, I'm in charge of this and I need to take the reins and achieve the sounds I need. And so that sound, that snare sound ended up being really, uh, uh, just fits in the song really nicely. You know, it was, it was kind of one of the, and it was, it was interesting because uh, on that album, Butch Big was exec- executive producer. Oh, and, I know. That's awesome. Yeah. So he, he, he and his wife just had their, their first baby, I think. And he was wanting to kind of do something, but couldn't be at the studio all the time. So he was sort of like executive producing from afar. And it was awesome because he's so great. But like after he heard the rough of it, he like texted me immediately. It's like, dude, that like so that's the first time I've ever had a producer like like so stoked that he's texting me that he likes the part, right? 
So I, I think of that, and it's and uh, credit also goes to Chris Testa, who is our engineer on uh, the session, and he's an awesome drummer as well. And it's great to be working with drummers who he can also like. He's a good drum tuner and can get good sounds. And so it was, you know, he he captured it, and um, but it was really a, a like one of my more proud prouder performances. Was this the demo uh, guitar? Did you guys no. keep that, or that was reverb? Okay, totally redone. And David Campbell, who's Beck's dad, did all the strings, and the strings are like the string arrangement on the song is fucking awesome. Like it's yeah. so cool. So I want you to play the, like going into the last chorus because like the crash down sounds really cool. Okay, yeah, yeah. Alright, let's play going into the last chorus. That's a uh, so I use a yarn mallet on the hi hat so to kind of give it like a little bit more of a softer you know sound and I use the butt of my stick and that snare is <laughs> it's like a limited edition Kenny Aronoff signature snare and it's it's very much like a Black Beauty but it has all these really beautiful etchings on it you know kind of like you know how like the custom Black Beauties had those the nice engraving all over it sure yeah and and. So I think he had like a Black Beauty style drum that was Tama's like Black Beauty, but it was Kenny Yarnoff's signature drum. And then they did like a limited edition of those where it was six and a half inches deep. And I got one of those from Tama when I was when I was with Tama a long time ago. Um, it's funny because I, I haven't changed the head since I did that mm. song and I really haven't changed the tuning. Like, I mean, it's probably sounds different now because it's just been so long, but I you know, I haven't really got that drum set up in a different way than the sort of sad sack um, sound that it has now. So I kind of use that a lot when uh, if I need something like that, I'll, I'll go to it. And it's kind of already set up that way. And I n- haven't changed anything really about it. Is it like almost to the point where the lugs are completely loose? I mean, it just sounds so low. Uh, I don't know. It's it's low, but it's there's a lot of muffling, a lot of te- a lot of tape, you know, sure, yeah. Um, you know, right. It's probably really loose right now. Like, I, you know, just sitting in the on, on my drum rack. But one of these days I need to see what that drum can do in terms of, 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 of maybe a different application. But uh, I've kind of just left it alone since then. Send me a picture of it eventually so I can put it as a promo for this show, because I definitely want to, you know. Yeah, I'll see send it. it to you. Yeah. Um, also, I wanted to say, so I'm not sure if it's just the compression of, of, of the overall drums, but do you do you take your hand away on the one? Yeah. Okay. And I want to bring that up because I think when you and me talked on the Indie Drum Collective, the thing that I wanted to focus more on is really respecting the downbeat. It's so funny because that, that beat is quote unquote simple, but just that little change over like a Billie Jean beat by just bringing the hi-hat over the, over the bass drum... You know, I mean, like that's that song's beat. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I think that there's a sort of, um, yeah, it does. It clears the way for for the kick drum to just be there on the one. And um, it just focuses, the, to me, it kind of just focuses the part. You know, the, it's like it has a little subtle thing. Like you said, it's, you know, that's the fun thing about drums for me. The thing that I think about more is like not what can I add, but like what can you take away that can make it cooler. And um, that's something I try to do whenever I'm coming up with a part. Well, I, I, I mean, that's a huge part of your playing that I respect. And I mean, I still play along to your records today and it, 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 trying to mimic exactly what you do. It's just like I try and do flourishes and I'm like, nope, that's not what the song needs. Keep it back. <laughs> and I mean, there's there's times uh, and actually we're going to talk about a song coming up where you definitely let loose. So, it, you know, people know you can and it's when you don't always that makes it that much cooler. Right. But um, all right. The next song is uh, a very long song called Goodbye Sky Harbor from Clarity, which came out in 99. And it's, uh, yeah, it's over 16 minutes long. Yeah. So what, what was the process for that song? So the the reason why I picked this song was the recording process was really interesting because mm-hmm. at the, you know, the song kind of goes by in a normal song structure. And then when the, when the bridge comes in, it just kind of keeps going and going. And when we were in the studio, we had this idea, like, let's use, because we were using tape back then. And so I think tape is like around... 16 minutes plus or whatever. So we're like, let's just use all of the tape. And then the <laughs> outro will just keep going and going and going. And we didn't really know exactly what we were going to do like over that time, but we mm-hmm. thought we'll come up with something cool along the way and like introduce like little things. And so when we were tracking the drums, there wasn't any, you know, guide track or, you know, there was really nothing going on. And so when it came to that part, I did there, and there's actually two drum parts happening right there. And the one one drum part was slowed that we slowed the tape down by half, so I actually had to play that part for like thirty minutes. And, oh my god! And so then when it comes in, like the the drum part, it's like the main drum part. It's like doom doom da da doom da doom doom da. Like that slows down so that when it's played back, it sounds a little bit more like it sounds smaller and, and, you know, uh, and then there's another drum part where it's just like, I think I'm just going do, do, you know, like just a really simple kind of backing part. That part was played at normal speed. So I had to do both of those parts, but I remember them hitting record and then they would just go, we were at sound city at the time. We were lucky enough to make both static prevails and clarity at the sound city studio. They literally just like left the control room and went and had like, you know, lunch or dinner (laughs) or something and played Arkanoid in the lounge. And then I was just sitting there like playing the part. And Mark Trombino, the producer, came back. He's like, okay, did you, is that everything cool? Did you, you didn't mess up, right? Okay, cool. Let's move on. But it it was really a a fun, it was kind of that record. We really tried to do different things and mess around and um, experiment more. And that was one of those things we did. And the making of it in the studio and piecing it together was was interesting and and just you know messing around with slowing the tape down to achieve a different sound it's just something that you don't even need to do these days you can just do it digitally or whatever but it's yeah it was it was a fun fun song it's something i remember it's like one of my most memorable songs to record So you'll hear like the really, it almost sounds like a toy drum kit, then doing the more complicated beat. And uh, then there's a really kind of normal, normal recorded 
drum part that's um, just kind of just doing two and four. Yeah. Whenever you hear this, does it take you back to just like your eyes closed? Like, don't screw this up, Zach. Don't screw this up, Zach. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, because it's so long that if you screw it up, you're that's like another another whatever 40 minutes you're going to have to waste, you know? Exactly. Like, and so, and at that time, you know, we were an unknown band making a major label album. And so we didn't have all the time in the world, you know, like we needed to get through stuff. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a little bit nerve wracking, but I just remember it being really fun and funny and like, uh, it's just a memory that's really strong memory that sticks out. I don't remember a lot about those albums and I don't have a lot of pictures of those albums. So it's like, I, but I do remember this really well. Um, do you remember what, what the drum machine that you used was? The end is all like, okay, so the end happened, it, that was all Trombino. Um, mm. I don't think I used a drum machine. It could have been samples. Like what he liked to do is take existing samples and like alter them. And I think uh, I was doing, like there was a parts of it where I was doing school, so I couldn't be there. Um, we were all still, there There was some reason why I couldn't be there, but at the, at the very end. And then, yeah, Trombino and Jim like put together as things faded out, put together like the crazy ending. I do remember the snare I used for the really kind of smaller drum sound is an Acrolyte. And I, I've, I had, I got like a seventies Acrolyte a long time ago in Boston on tour. And I've used that for a bunch of songs through Static Prevails and no, not Static Prevails. It was only on Clarity and Bleed America. And I used it on both those albums a ton, like that same drums used on the middle and other, you know, other songs. But, uh, but yeah, I do remember that being an acrolyte. But that snare pops. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great snare. I mean, it's like um, I, I used it a lot in on those two albums. I mean, a ton. And then before we made it futures, I bought a '60s one, and the '60s acrolyte just seems to like always beat out the '70s one in a shootout. So we don't use the '70s one very much anymore. Yeah, I have a, a it's a Pearl Sensitone uh, aluminum. <laughs> And it's basically, I think the patent ran out with the Acrolyte. And so like Tama, everyone just made their version of that beaded snare. And the Sensitone is basically a 10 lug Acrolyte. So you have a little more finesse. That's cool. Um, but yeah, it's it's my favorite snare. Aluminum, uh, you can crank it, it, it can sound woody. You can, you know, it's it's amazing. So, yeah, that's the thing I I gravitate towards, uh, you know, like the, the darker metals and mm. the solid shell wood construction those two, those two materials kind of speak to me. And I use those a lot. Q drums just started making a, an acrolyte, but it's a half inch deeper. Okay. You know, it's very similar to an acrolyte with a half inch deeper. And it's like, it's my favorite drum now. It's so amazing. And I use it live, um, all the time. And it's, it's, it's so good. Hey y'all, I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. 
And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at BigFatSnareDrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour, and I didn't keep it, and I regretted it ever since then, just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time, and I just kept thinking about it, and so the opportunity to get it again was presented, and it is one of my favorite drums. So the Ocean Patinaed 14 by 5.5 snare drum. Check it out. Reach out to me. Go to Vessel Drum Co., the Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co. and check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. All right. So number three is 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 Pass the Baby from Integrity Blues. I remember it was about a year and a half ago. I was in the studio and someone played the end of that song as a reference to what they wanted our song to end with. They're like, you got to listen to this part. So yeah, let me just play the ending of this song, and it's exactly the opposite of what I was talking about. Where. Uh, <laughs> you do just let loose on this, which is yeah. so fun. comes first on that was the guitar riff or did you just go crazy at the end and he wrote around that or so yeah the guitar riff is what jim came up with first um and so uh i had to kind of create something that would flow along with that and all of the sort of odd meters you know it's it's like i'd never really mapped it out but it's like he's throwing in extra hits and yeah um and so like that was literally just in the studio, just trying to come up with something like on the spot. Uh, I had, I didn't have anything. I sort of was worried about that song the whole time we were making the album <laughs> because I didn't yeah. have anything prepared and I didn't really even know exactly what the part was. Like it, it was one of those things where I was like sort of freewheeling in the moment. And a lot of the stuff I came up with. Um, so what we did is there's like, I think there's like eight cycles in that or there's like a certain amount of cycles where it's the theme is similar but the lengths are different and the accents are some different but it's kind of like the same yeah. thing repeating and we so what we, what we did was 
the way I literally recorded that is I we would play one cycle over and over and over. And I would just like come up with stuff. And I was literally trying to make the guys in the control room laugh. You know, like yeah, I yeah. was just I was just doing dumb stuff to like make that that snare thing like that. Like yeah. when I started doing that, I was literally like, oh, they'll like this, they'll laugh yeah. at this. And I was joking around. <laughs> sure. And then and you know, and then when I was done, they're like, oh yeah, no, do that. That, that was awesome. You know, and so <laughs> we I literally just cycled around all of those, all of those patterns. And I never really even uh, I think just it was kind of learning it doing that and learning each pattern and then putting it together. And it's funny now because when I play it live, it's like, I, it's so much fun to play now live because I don't have the anxiety of at the time I was playing it, not really even knowing if I was doing the right thing. And I hate that feeling in the studio where you're, you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants and you don't feel like you're prepared. You don't like the part is not in you. You know what I mean? Like the, to me, I want to go into the studio and I don't even want to think about what I'm doing. I just want to like, you know, focus on performance and uh, not even worry about the part mm-hmm. and think about, okay, am I hitting the snare consistently? How did the drum sound? Um, am I easing off the cymbals enough? Like I'm thinking about all that stuff. I'm not even worried about the part, but on that song, it was like, I had to, uh, you know, I had to really think about like, okay, what's next? Wait, what's next? And it was really hard to record. Like the end result was, was cool. And we, we'd never really done anything quite like that. And so it was fun to challenge ourselves in that way. And, and like, we've kind of been joking that we want to make a record that's just all that and all just like, like doom metal, you know, like, like riffs like that. I vote that you do do that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard in, in recent uh, or past interviews that, I mean, Bonham and, and Grohl are huge influences. I mean, that's just you being, that's just you being Bonham and Grohl right there. Yeah. Trying my best to imitate the yeah the masters yeah i mean <laughs> just uh i've always liked those guys just because not even like what they play but how, how they play it you know mm-hmm. like when Grohl plays just you know when both of those guys just play a, a beat it just sounds like them and mm-hmm. the way they strike their drums is unique and different and sounds like them and it's like uh, that's that's what i i want to i want to try to be like that or you know that's my goal it's my sort of okay i'm going to try and do that well, I will say that you have done that, and I, I think a huge part of when I think of Zach Lynn's drums are the sounds. You're very much like, I don't think on any of the records, you just, you like the first song, drum sounds, are there's a through line through the, I mean, there's the same vibe, but you kind of approach each song with a different drum sound, and it's very apparent that that's really, you, you respect that. When you are writing a drum part, are you thinking of, okay, I'm going to do this. It might be a little restrained, but I have this effect or this tuning in my mind. And that's, what's going to make this song sound different from, you know, song three to song four. Yeah. I think about that all the time. I mean, yeah. uh, it's, it's like, usually when we go into the studio, there's a kind of general theme of what we're trying to achieve, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, and I'll think about, okay, what drums will help me kind of be the sort of foundational, you know, drum set that I piece together. And it's very rare that my bass drum matches my toms or I use the same snare from song to song. Like I'm always mixing, mm-hmm. I'm always mixing it up. Um, but it just sort of depends on the album. You know, the, the last album was, was very kind of rock oriented. So I just uh, had a thought of like, okay, I want it to be, I want everything to be really kind of like bright and in your face and, you know, but like really present, but 
Um, so, you know, I had a certain thought of using certain kinds of drums. So I'm always thinking about the sound. And then it really starts coming together in terms of sounding. Sounds is when we're doing pre-production. Mm-hmm. And pre-production is when I'm like, I usually, I don't like to change heads in the studio at all. I don't like going into the studio with fresh heads. So I'll always, you know, if I feel like the drums need new heads, I'll put those on before pre-production. Okay. Um, if I can get away with not putting any new heads on it, I won't. You know, so like, um, I've been using, I have this, I have these eighties, um, Gretsch power toms that I got from a church. Um, actually, uh, I got it from the church that my wife and I were married. So when we got married, this drum set was like on the stage and, and I, and so, and the guy, they were updating their drum set and they knew they wanted to get rid of their Jasper shell, like Gretsch's. And I was like, yeah, I'll take that. So I, (laughs) I got that from them and I use those toms on the last two albums. I use those toms mostly exclusively. I use, uh, the Q kit on a lot on the last album a little bit too, but, and, uh, and those have had the same heads on it from integrity blues, the last album. And then this album. So I try to keep it. Um, and, but to me that like allows me to get the snares, um, comfortable and I'm not, you don't go into the studio chasing new sound or chasing for that fresh head sound. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm always thinking in pre-production about, okay, well, this snare will probably be good for that. And, um, you know, have a kind of a game plan. And then obviously when I go into the studio and get into the room, whatever room we're in, um, having a discussion with the producer or, and Jim too, Jim and I will talk about it. Speaking of the Gretsch kit, I think you used them on uh, a really cool part of this next song we're going to talk about, which is delivery. And that's off surviving from, I guess it's not last year anymore. It's 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Just talk about uh, the, the breakdown of this song. So this song is um, one of those songs where it's similar to Gotta Be Somebody's Blues, where it's like it's literally the same drum part all the way throughout the whole song. The pattern never changes. And I have like an obsession with songs like that. Like mm-hmm. I always try to do that or, or let's come up with a part that just never changes. It's static and everything around the song and all the dynamic changes and the energy changes are due to every something else coming in. Right. So the drums are kind of just like... Uh, the thing I think about is like, it's like a lazy river, you know, when you're at the water park and you're in the tube and you just kind of go down the river. And like, that's how I imagine the part. Um, and so this song is like that. And I wanted to talk about it just because, um, I really like that idea of the drum part being static and being okay with that. Um, and we were, when we were in the middle of making it though, um, we wanted to do something in the last chorus that kind of felt like, Oh, okay. This is, it's one thing that their drums can do to differentiate it from the rest of the song. You know, just that idea of like, I just wanted to do a really basic fill and do it over and over and over and not (laughs) have to not change it. Yeah. So, uh, so that's what we did. And I, I loaded up, um, I, I put, uh, the 12 up and the four, it's a 12, 14 and 16, uh, Gretsch Tom's. And um, I didn't have like two snare stands or two two tom stands, so I had to use my one tom stand and one snare stand for the tom on the left. So it's a little bit of an awkward, but that's kind of how I played it. And um, I just love this sort of. It's just kind of the drum. The drum part is it. It helps the listener kind of go into this trance. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a just sort of re- repetitive part that gets you kind of in that trance mode, kind of like Goodbye Sky Harbor too, where that thing goes over and over and over. 
and just gets the listener into a headspace that's a little bit more dreamy and um, where the drums are, are a little bit more passive and allowing space for other things to do interesting things. I know that was a superphonic uh, Ludwig, nothing special, just like I think like a 90s superphonic snare. And uh, that I actually got from Chris Testa when he engineered uh, Chase the Slide. I traded him for a cymbal. And uh, I love that snare. We use that all the time. Um, the cymbal, the crash I use there is the same crash I use in Gotta Be Somebody's Blues, just like that one kind of psh, like really long decay. Um, but I don't think it's turned up enough in the mix, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I was actually going to bring up the crashes. Um, so were those, were those overdubs or were those played in real time? It was played, that? it was played in real time. Okay. Because yeah, I mean, I think you obviously don't start off the song with a crash. It starts off with just the bass drum again, respecting the one. Um, but, uh, there's maybe like a crash going into the first chorus and then a crash going into the bridge and then out of the bridge. And then at the end you kind of do it a little more often, but, but yeah, this, this song especially is, is the perfect example of why I would say you do have a very unique sound because going into that, that chorus, when the bass finally comes in for the first chorus, and then it has that, that lead, that high lead. Whenever I'm thinking of, of in the studio, I think of what would Zach do in the way of like, okay, the part is building up around me. I don't need to loosen up my hi-hat. I don't need to go to a floor tom or I don't need to do something else. Just let the song, like when, when that bass comes in, your the hairs on the back of your neck start to stand up because you're just grooving, but the song is still, you, something's coming. And it's um, it's such a fun way to write drum parts. And it's, uh, so yeah, you're awesome is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> oh, well, thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of like a, you know, that song dynamically is really tricky because, mm. you know, um, when the drums aren't doing really obvious things to create dynamic changes, you know, um, you have to use other things to subtly and to subtly bring in and layer it. And um, that song is kind of like a thing, you know, it's sort of like a frog and, you know, boiling water that it, they don't really know it's like it gets it's getting hotter and getting hotter and getting hotter but you can't really point to like oh wait you can't point to like a definitive thing that comes in that's the moment all, yeah you know and um so that's kind of what we wanted the song to be like it had we had to execute it dynamically in a really tricky way that's something that that is it sounds easy when you hear it right but it's really hard those are those are the really hard songs and those are really the hard songs to play live because mm -hmm. Um, if you don't execute those dynamic changes 
in a way that's still in keeping with the album and it's subtle enough and you still get you still feel like if you listen to the last chorus and then the first chorus you can back to back you can hear the differences like oh okay we get it but um if you if you don't do that over the course of the song it just you're sort of gradually led into this sort of bigger uh more um i don't know dramatic sound and mm-hmm. so uh that's something that it's nice you know sometimes the drums don't need to do that and other things can do that but it's like i think it's good as a drummer to recognize when you're not needed and um and a lot of times that's a conversation with the band you know or the producer like let's um and then there's times where if everything else is kind of static and the drums need to kind of implement something then you can do that too you know but that's something we constantly think about it's like the song you know the element of surprise is your greatest weapon when you're making a song. And so what can you do to introduce little surprises along the way that people aren't ready for? And it, and so with a song like delivery, that that's executing that is really hard. Um, well, you are a, a great co-host because you're segueing perfectly into the next song, uh, which is about surprises. So it's uh, the song is called Claire off uh, static prevails from 1996. And um, yeah, let's just play a little bit of that song and then we'll talk about it. Cool. Those flams sound great. Is that a staple in your live set? It's not. It's not. And um, we played it. If we were going to play a song from Static Prevails, um, the song we usually play the most is Thinking That's All, which is the first song on the record. Mm -hmm. Um, We occasionally will play Rockstar and we'll occasionally play. uh, What's the other song? Call It in the Air sometimes. But, But to me, like, that's my favorite song on the album. And the reason why I kind of chose that was um, Static Prevails was our first major label album. And and there were circumstances that came up to where we had to record the album in two different sessions. Mm -hmm. And so um, we recorded the first session, I think it was in the summer. And then the second session was in the winter. And um, the first session we go in and again, we're, we're I'm loading in my drums into Sound City, which is like this. At the time, I knew it was in a rad studio, but at the time, I don't think I truly appreciated the history of that place. So we're we're, yeah. we're we're in this amazing studio, historic, and loading and stuff. And like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. This is like the first time we've ever made a record that was like expensive or that wasn't just like money we scrounged around to go to like the some dude's digital studio in Phoenix somewhere. Yeah. So, so long story short, I, I really struggled in that first. Um, session 
and I wasn't able to play to the click. Um, I'd never really tried to play to a click before. Um, we literally, the way we made those first, that the, the, the way we got through that first session was Trombino had a 57 in the control room with the pencil and he tapped on it and I would play with it. And that's what I could kind of get away with. And I left that, I left that session really dejected, even though I feel like we got good enough parts. I'm like, man, that sucks. Like, I don't want to have to, I don't want to be a liability in the studio. I don't want to be in the, I don't want to be the dude in the studio that's like dragging the process down and making it longer and harder and more tedious. So, um, Trombino just said, Hey, like go home and play to a click and get used to playing these songs to a click and come back. And, and in December we'll do it. We'll do, we'll, we'll, we'll do it better. So Claire was one of the songs that was in the second batch. And it was kind of the first moment for me where I, when I listened to it back and I heard everyone put all the other stuff on it and the song was done, it was like the first, uh, signal to me is like, Hey dude, all you need to do is be solid. And there, it, it makes the song feel so much better when you're playing in a pocket and when, you know, when you're hitting those flams, when they're in the pocket makes such a big difference than when you're not, you know, dialed in and playing, uh, you know, playing consistently and in, 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 the, in, in the right tempo. And so that was kind of like, for me, when I heard that finished and hearing it back, it was the, it was like the first time where I realized, oh, that's, I need to like do more of that. I need to be less worried about like, you know, tricky little things and do more of like just the kind of meat and potatoes where you're playing a basic thing, but the part feels so much better. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, and then I also just love that song and I think we should play it more live. Um, I agree. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, and the, the cool thing about it is, um, you know, I'd love to re-record that because I listened to it and like, man, I'm just fucking drilling the cymbals so hard. The (laughs) cymbals are super bright. Um, Everything about the drum kit. I mean, it sounds fine, but I'd be like, back then I wasn't in, I wasn't the person, I wasn't the architect of my sound. I was letting other people decide what the sound was because I didn't know any better. Right. And I I thought I'd, I'd hear it like, yeah, that sounds cool. You know, let's play, you know, and I wasn't really thinking about it. So it'd be cool to redo that and like, you know, dial it in. Well, this song is fun too because uh, speaking of arrangement, like the um, the Lazy River, the arrangement for this one is cool because it's it the, the intro is kind of flipped. The intro's soft, and then when he starts singing for the verse, that's when you guys get really heavy. Yeah, and so it's that's the surprise right off the bat because you hear it and you're like, oh, it's gonna be a nice little like chill song, you know, a nice little Sunday morning tune, and then it goes crazy, which is um, again, yeah, it's just a very parent. Uh, surprise that's cool yeah i mean back then we were just figuring things out you know we, were, we didn't really know what we were doing we're like oh this sounds cool you know we, we were we were just trying to come out of our like part rock phase where we would write a million parts for the song and it was like seven minutes part long <laughs> seven minutes long with two different bridges and one one cool breakdown and then then there's the transition and then like okay uh claire is a good example of like one of the earlier songs where it's pretty simple you know, all the way through and, um, um, where it's like almost the melody and, um, the more subtle elements can be executed well. And you have this more impactful outcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing that I always have in my drumming pulled from your influence is to allow the auxiliary percussion to supplement subdivisions 
And this song's a good example of, in that verse, when you do kind of go to the cymbals, I'm assuming you're just doing eighth notes, you know, do, do, cat do. And the tambourine's doing the 16th notes behind yeah. you it, yeah, in, the, right. in the mix. It's, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's, it's, it's allowed a drummer, when you try and think in that context, it, to, to, to be less cluttered. If you go, okay, I want to go, because when I'm playing it, my body wants me to go to higher subdivisions. But if I just relax, I know that in post, they're going to add the auxiliary percussion, and that's going to kind of push the song forward. Um, so I was curious if, if, if that's something that, that you also think about, too, when you kind of have to restrain yourself in that context. I think about it sometimes. I, I usually, my default is less subdivisions. Like, so, like, I will, you know, if I can, um, a lot of the stuff lately in the last few albums, there's, there's like a lot of songs where I'm not even doing a consistent thing on my right hand. So if I can get away with doing less subdivisions, it does make it hard to record because when you're not, when you're not doing that regular subdivision with a hand, it like makes it harder to play in the pocket because you really rely mm -hmm. on that to, to kind of get you through it. But, um, but yeah, I think it's like, it, can I do less? And, um, and then when I do more, it's going to say, Oh, that's cool. The huge energy boost. He's doing, he's doing eights on the hi-hat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And we're always, you know, um, at times, yeah, we will rely on, on percussion to do that. Sometimes I will, we'll, I'll do a lot of like, I do a lot of ghost notes and parts to, if I want a part to feel like it's more, um, if I just need to in, inject some energy into the part of a song, I'll, I'll use, that's kind of like, I'll use ghost notes to kind of give it that, um, almost like, you know, manic, crazy energy that sometimes parts need. I think uh, big casino is a good example of that. The verses yeah. in big casino. Yep. Big casino, like lucky Denver mint sweetness. Um, I use it all the time. It's just like, I, I use those all the time to, to, um, sometimes it'll just be, uh, I use it a lot in um, in surviving too. Uh, it's just a way to give like verse two. Sometimes really subtle ghost notes can give like a verse two. Like oh, what's going on? And, like people don't really hear it, but they kind of feel it, and it's sort of subliminal and stuff like that. Is 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 uh, is fun. Yeah, I will say Big Casino is probably one of my favorite album openers of all time. Oh, okay, it's just cool. Got, it's just right off the bat, just kicks you in the nuts. It's yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, man. Well, those are, yeah, those are the five. Um, so Jimmy Eat World is actually doing some live streaming of three records, Surviving, Clarity, and Futures. By the time this comes out, Surviving will have already aired. It's actually airing on today when we're talking. But uh, we have Clarity and Futures coming up next. So uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that whole situation? Yeah, uh, we'd been kind of going around and around about what to do. We wanted to do something cool for our fans during this time and we weren't really sure how to do it or, you know, we looked at various ways to achieve some kind of live stream thing, you know, and we were kind of seeing what other people did. And, and, uh, it's funny because, um, we hired the same people who did the Pussifer, uh, concert oh. film. And we actually, when they asked us what, give us some interesting places in Arizona to film, we were like, well, we said Arcosanti. And it's like, oh, well, we're sorry. We already did that with Pussifer. <laughs> Which so, is arguably an amazing place to do it. Yeah, yeah it's cool. It's really cool. Um, and their 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 uh, film, their concert film, was really cool. So we ended up hiring the same people and um, decided to like. We didn't really care about it being live. We didn't really care about it being like live live. 
Um, you know, when you order it and when you watch it, you're hearing what you're saying. We didn't go back and do any like overdubs or anything like that. But um, but it's also filmed and it's mixed. So Jim actually mixed it and it sounds awesome. He did such an such a rad job. Um, and it's visually like one of the coolest things we've ever done. Because that, I mean, if you've seen any of the Pussifer footage, um, it's just like on par with that in terms of just visually awesome work. You know, the camera crew and um, just the creative team that 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 production team has is is amazing. So, um, so we decided to do three albums, and um, and call each album like a chapter. So it, maybe hopefully down the road we can do we can sort of fill in more chapters with other albums and stuff like that. So, but yeah, we're really stoked on it, and it's um, you know, it was super hard work like rehearsing and getting ready for three albums, um, but it was. Uh, I think in the long run, it's it's something. It almost feels like we're, we made an album, and we feel really proud. We have that same feeling of like making an album and feeling really proud of it. Um, so we hope people dig it. I mean, I'm sure there were songs that you guys have a handful of them that you've never performed live, right? Yeah, um, congratulations. We've never played live, which was um, a song. It's the last song off of our newest album. We'd never played that, so uh, we kind of had to get our arms around that guy, and then. Uh, um, just songs that we'd never normally play. Um, you know, we've, we've done, we did a clarity tour back in the day and we did a futures tour back in the day. So we have played all those songs. We just don't play them very often. So it was like, mm. we were literally watching YouTube clips of us playing at, the, at those <laughs> concerts. Like, what did we do? How did we cover this? And, um, I was like making a joke. It's like, this guy is filming us on his phone at a concert and he has no idea. Like in the future, we're going to be watching that video to figure out what we were doing so we could play it again. <laughs> they don't realize that you forget that stuff. And, you know, when, especially when, you know, we have 10 albums, it's, it's like, we forget, we straight up forget about songs, you know, Oh wait, we had, yeah, that song. And, um, you know, it's a good problem to have, but it, it is something that happens. Well, Zach, thank you so much for taking the time, man. Um, especially on the day that it's coming out, I'm sure you're getting a million texts. So, um, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time again. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I appreciate you guys and what you do and, and, uh, the stuff you sent me, I'm using more and more. I'm getting off of my, my tape as much, but, uh. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, when you re-record Gotta Be Somebody's Blues, just use a big fat snare drum and then we'll be uh, we'll be even. Okay, cool. (laughs) Sounds good, man. (laughs) All right, dude. Thank you. Take care. And that's the show. Be sure to subscribe. And if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, which means the show will get better and bigger and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'd be an OG listener that could brag to all your friends. Um, anyways, also, why don't you go ahead and check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the socials. Just search for at BigFatSnareDrum and you will find it. This show is edited in part using Isotope RX-8 Audio Editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at Isotope.com. Bye.